If you have a copy of God's Word, I invite you to turn to Luke chapter 6. The Gospel of Luke chapter 6. Now, as you're turning there, just to say a word of appreciation to the musicians, those who make the effort to bring their instruments and to come along and play. I, um, I really enjoy it. I don't always say. I don't remark on everything that I enjoy all the time, but I really enjoy it. There's maybe one or two of you who have instruments and can play, um, and you don't bother. I want to encourage you to reconsider. Um, there's some I know it's a little bit more awkward. I look at Don, I think, <laughs> bring the double bass someday. <laughs> I don't think I've seen that yet here, but uh, I certainly would encourage. I wouldn't stop you at all. And uh, I don't know, maybe a apprentice someday will come in with her harp as well. And, well we, but I, I enjoy it, I really do. It's, it's good for the soul, encourages the heart. appreciate all the accompaniment and thank you for your effort in that. I appreciate it very much. We're in Luke chapter 6 and we are into Luke's record of the Beatitudes. And we looked at... Verse 20, last time, and we will again just go back a little to verse 17 and read from there. Luke chapter 6, verse 17. May the Lord bless the reading of His Word and help us even as we read it to hear what He has to say to us. And He came down with them and stood in the plain. And the company of his disciples and a great multitude of people out of all Judea and Jerusalem and from the seacoast of Tyre and Sidon, which came to hear him and to be healed of their diseases. And they were vexed with unclean spirits, and they were healed. And the whole multitude sought to touch him, for there went virtue out of him and healed them all. And he lifted up his eyes on his disciples and said, Blessed be ye poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are ye that hunger now. For ye shall be filled. Blessed are ye that weep now, for ye shall laugh. Blessed are ye when men shall hate you, and when they shall separate you from their company, and shall reproach you, and cast out your name as evil for the Son of Man's sake. Rejoice and rejoice ye in that day, and leap for joy, for behold your reward is great in heaven, for in the like manner did their fathers unto the prophets. But woe unto you that are rich, for ye have received your consolation. Woe unto you that are full, for ye shall hunger. Woe unto you that laugh now, for ye shall mourn and weep. Woe unto you when all men shall speak well of you, for so did their fathers too, the false prophets. Amen. May the Lord be pleased to bless his word to us. Let us all seek the Lord momentarily. Let us all pray. Lord, we are thankful that in this body... There is an appreciation for worship and the lyrics in our praise and the music that accompanies that praise that calls our hearts to be lifted heavenward. It's not about any individual performance. It's not about drawing attention to certain individuals. We just desire for every heart to be helped and to be encouraged that there would be that song that Thou has given to us, the song that, that new song that is given when we come to Christ. 
May that be more manifest in our lives as we come here each Lord's Day and day by day as we live. We know that heaven is going to be a tremendous scene of praise. We can't even begin to fathom it. We pray that even our thoughts about heaven would be frequent. We would consider regularly what it will be like to stand in that throng that praise the Lamb and rejoice with such a sense of freedom unfettered by sin and the fallenness of our nature. But while we are on earth, help us, Lord. Elevate, elevate our worship more and more and make it more continuous and steady and stable that we would be truly those that are the living to praise Thee. Be with us now in the Word. Give that help. Lord, accomplish Thy purpose. Save the lost. Restore the backslidden. Comfort and encourage the hearts of Thy people. Let there be a word and season to every soul, directing this preacher in a way that is fitting, that each heart will know that God has had a word for them, and the response will be what Thou dost intend. Here, these are prayers in Jesus' name. Amen. Last week we <clears throat> considered the first of the Beatitudes that Luke records for us in his account found in verse 20, where the Lord Jesus lifted up his eyes on his disciples and said, Blessed be ye poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Now, I said last week, and I just reiterate some aspects in case you were not here, that there are differing views in relation to the context in which these words were said. Good men differ. And I mentioned some of them last week, some who consider Luke's record to be different from what Matthew gives in Matthew chapter 5, and others that believe that this is the same event, recorded differently, for Luke has a different purpose, but it is the same event nonetheless. I also pointed out last week that it is addressed to his disciples. Verse 20, he lifted up his eyes on his disciples, and they are distinct. They are a distinct group highlighted for us in verse 17, where there are those that are his own apostles, the twelve that he came down with them. So there are the twelve that have been set apart, and then there's the company of his disciples, a, a larger group of individuals who have chosen to follow Christ and see him as the rabbi that they find most interest in and are showing some measure of allegiance to. But as I said last week, there, there's a great difference in terms of the, the devotion and the dedication of the twelve and these disciples. The twelve are manifesting a willingness to lay aside everything, all ambition, all desires for things of the world, and just wholly throw in their lot with Christ. Not all of them are as dedicated as they ought to be. Outwardly, they manifest it very similarly, but Judas is there for alternative reasons and uh, false motives. He becomes the treasurer. He has the bag. He's very happy with that because he can line his own pockets with some of the skimming off the fat, as it were, in order to further his own desire. But by and large, they are devoted. In contrast, of course, the disciples, that large group, we learn that they are not so devoted. 
Again, they appear to be, they're following Christ, they have an interest in what he has to say, they are taken up, no doubt, by his miracles, they are sharing to others the need to follow Christ, to be interested in what he is doing, to maybe even consider him as the Messiah, all of this. But as we learn in John chapter 6, many of them will turn back and walk no more with him. They will decide that they have no real interest in Christ when it comes to the point of what the, the gospel really requires for men, they decide, no, it is not for me. Not an uncommon thing. It happens all the time when people really grasp what it is to be a Christian, they decide, no, really, no, that's not really for me. Sometimes it is expressed, other times it is shown forth simply because they, they just drift away. They disappear. They start getting caught up in other things and Lo and behold, you may meet them at times, and as I have, and you talk to them, and you talk to them what it is to be a Christian, what the gospel is, and they say, oh, I, I, I'm, I am saved. So, oh, oh, really? Then you, you pry a little more, and you find out at some point they, they, they responded to an appeal, but they, they, they never read their Bibles, they're not interested in God's will for their life, they, they just continue on really like they were prior to this decision. Just now they think they're saved because they responded to what the preacher invited them to do. They think they're going to heaven. They were told that whenever they prayed. And they say, no, you're, no, you're saved. Now you're going to heaven. And they think, oh, great. And when they realize that it's, there, there's maybe a bit of pressure, maybe even from the church and other Christians to be more further involved and more dedicated, they, they kind of just start to separate. They start to drift. They no longer want to be involved. They disappear. The church no longer sees them. Christians never see them. And... And again, they just they end up in the past life that they were living before. But now, but now they're going to heaven. At least some of them continue to think that. I remember one believer that I worked with. He, he was of a very different <laughs> theological persuasion than I am and I was. Uh, he was more Pentecostal and all, all that's involved with that. And his... This parachurch group that he was involved with uh, had an outreach to young people, to uh, youth in the area. And he, I remember him telling me that there was, you know, a number of people who professed and so on and so forth. And some months later, uh, he was telling me about just the previous night. They had their normal, I don't know, it was every other week or something. I think it was every two weeks. They had a meeting on a Thursday night. And he was telling me that there was a young boy who was there, he turned up, he hadn't seen him in a number of months, and, and he was talking to him, and he was telling me that the young boy had said to him, uh, well, he was asking him, where have you been? And he said, well, you know, um, yeah, I'm just, I'm, I'm not saved. And, and he began to tell me that he was telling him, no, no, you are saved, you know, you're once saved, you're always saved. And, and he was trying to convince this young boy, this, this teenager, that he was saved when the, 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 the boy himself knew. He knew that he was not saved. He, he knew that whatever had happened that night with the mission, with the outreach, whatever had happened, it wasn't really what Christianity is all about. And he knew in himself he wasn't trying to make himself out to be something. He wasn't uh, making excuses for his absence over the past months. He just, no, I'm, I'm not saved. And this I could use some certain words that I'll just not bother using. But this believer who meant well but was very, 
doesn't really grasp the gospel himself, trying to convince this, this teenager, no, you're definitely saved. No, the, the people do depart. They do. They, they depart and they don't really have an interest anymore. They may have received the word initially with joy, according to our Lord's parable of the sower. But then they drift. Trials, afflictions, the cares of the world, the deceitfulness of riches, all these things come and they have their pull and their draw and their influence upon hearts and they decide, no, I'm, I'm, I'm not interested anymore. And it's utter folly to try and say, well, no, they're still going to heaven, they're still saved and just ignore the, the, the fact there's no real fruit and no evidence. So when we read it in the life of our Lord Jesus, it should, in one sense, it doesn't encourage us, but it does educate us that this is commonplace. It happens. It happened in the life of the Lord as he starts to push certain truths of what it means to be a believer. They depart. They walk no more with him. And so in this occasion, as I said again last week, there is an evangelistic, there is a a kind of a very clear message that is coming across from the lips of our Lord that is designed to confirm or convict, I think were the words I used last week, confirm or convict. Those that have the root of the matter, they, they begin to see these characteristics that are found in the life of the regenerate. And while they may not see them to the fullest degree they desire, they can recognize that some work, spiritual work, has been done in their lives and they can recognize it and it confirms that God has done a work in their lives. And in contrast, again, as these characteristics are put before men, it brings conviction or ought to bring conviction to those that have have really nothing. They just cannot relate to what the Lord is teaching in this passage. It's sobering, therefore. And the first one deals with poverty. Blessed be ye poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. And the next one deals with hunger. Blessed are ye that hunger now, for ye shall be filled. Hunger. Blessed are ye that hunger now. You're favored if you hunger now. Does the Lord mean to suggest that Hunger is a favorable experience? Yes. He does. And that's what he's saying. There's a blessing in hunger. But then we ask, is he referring to physical hunger? Is it a blessed experience and a favored experience to have nothing to eat and to require food? Well, again, if we go back to what we considered last week... In looking at poverty, we establish that poverty that is considered in the physical, where a man has nothing, where he is a beggar, he has no money to his name, not a cent at all, that's really the, the, the emphasis of the language. If you take it physically, this, this person has nothing, but that is not a blessed position to be in. We establish that the poverty spoken of is, is not that of the beggar who has no money. But the scriptures are clear that a man is not to, to, to elevate that position and see it as favorable. Rather, he is to work with his own hands and work to the degree that he may, God blessing him, 
blessing his labors and gainful employment, that he may even be able to help those that are without. What we considered then was the real meaning of the text is that it is a spiritual poverty. It is the blessed condition of knowing that you have nothing to offer God. You have nothing that impresses God. You realize that if you're ever going to be in heaven, you can't. You're, it is utterly impossible to do anything that will gain your own way there. So you, you, you enter into this position, a blessed position of poverty. God, I have nothing. I have nothing. I can't do anything. I can never satisfy your holy demands. My best effort from this moment onward cannot in any way make up for the past, nor can it ever be what it needs to be anyway. And so a man comes to a position, a woman comes to a place, a boy or a girl realizes that they can't do anything to impress God. Literally nothing. If you were to quantify that which is spiritual, that impresses God in terms of correlated with, with money, you don't have a hypne. You have, you have nothing. You have absolutely nothing to offer God at all. This is the blessed position. And the beatitude we're coming to tonight is very similar. Blessed are ye that hunger now. Christ is not suggesting that a man who may be able to provide for himself, if we understand verse 20 correctly, okay, so he has material provision, but he has a spiritual poverty. We come to verse 21, obviously then it is not. Here's a man with material provision, but spiritual poverty that he recognizes, but he is in no way to use his material provision to, to meet his physical hunger. That wouldn't make any sense at all. It is a hunger that reflects something that is needed within the soul. A hunger that is a favorable hunger that makes all the difference, not just in this life, but more to the point in the life to come. I mean, if you understand this hunger to be one of physical hunger, then such an interpretation only leads us to, again, a, a position of promoting self-righteousness, a self-established righteousness. If only we starve ourselves, we can obtain the favor of God. You think about that for a minute. Just think about that. If the text is saying, if I leave myself hungry physically, then that's in some way a blessed position that God desires me to be in. That God favors, that God sees as in some way valuable. If, if that is the case, then what do we say to those that actually are in physical hunger? You go to them and say, oh great, you're, you, you, you've nothing to eat? That's wonderful. That's God's favor on your life. Blessed are they that hunger. God's favoring you. And, and then you walk away because if you were to give them anything, <laughs> feed them in any way, you'd remove the blessing from them. Obviously it cannot be physical. It makes no sense whatsoever. 
would remove us from our obligation. 1 John 3.17, one example. Whoso hath this world's good, and seeth his brother have need, and shutteth up his bowels of compassion from him, how dwelleth the love of God in him? No, no, it's not material. It's not. And our understanding is helped when we go to Matthew 5, and it is developed a little more, where we are told, Blessed are they which do hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be filled. The focus of the hunger is toward righteousness. So tonight we're considering a life-changing appetite, a life-changing appetite. And it is life-changing. It is life-changing. Blessed are ye that hunger now. Blessed are ye that have this appetite that we will consider here. First, the object needed. What is the object needed? It is righteousness. We know that from Matthew chapter 5. Blessed are ye that do, which do hunger and thirst after righteousness. You, your hunger now is for righteousness. But what does Christ mean by righteousness? If I was to ask you, explain to me what does Christ mean by righteousness, what would you say? Again, anytime you come across a word in the New Testament, you should ask yourself the question, well, does the Old Testament deal with this? Is there something in the Old Testament that, that would help me understand what the Lord is dealing with here? In the context of the Lord being upon the earth, the minds of the people would be, would be constantly thinking upon and studying the Old Testament Scriptures to discover what the Word is saying in relation to the Messiah. And in all the discussion and everything that's going on during the ministry of Jesus Christ, I have to believe that as people opened the Word and studied the Scriptures and pondered the Word of God, that it would all revolve around what has God promised in relation to the Messiah. Because if this man is Messiah, if this is him, then those passages have to be highlighted. We must be considering them. We must be studying them. We must be concerned about them predominantly so that we can grasp, is this fulfilled in him? Is this coming to pass? Does it tell us anything that is of significance? In Jeremiah chapter 23 there is a prophecy about Messiah in verse 6, where we're told, In his days Judah shall be saved, and Israel shall dwell safely. And this is his name whereby he shall be called the Lord our righteousness. This is how he will be known. The Lord our righteousness. Not just the Lord who is righteous. That's expressed through the Old Testament Scriptures everywhere. He is certainly the Lord who is righteous. But here, the title given, we were singing of it, Jehovah said, can you? The Lord, our righteousness. And so you glean from this messianic passage, you learn from this messianic passage that Messiah will be the righteousness of those who are his people. That his people are not identified by being those that accomplish their own righteousness. 
They're not set apart from the world because they live in such a distinct fashion that they impress God. But Messiah is coming because he is going to become, he will be the righteousness of those who belong to God. Christ is the fulfillment of that promise. He is the Lord, our righteousness. He is the garment that the Christian wears. He is the beauty that adorns the believer. He is the key that unlocks heaven. He is that which we must have if we will be in glory. If you're going to avoid the wrath of God, the judgment of God, make it understood in your mind. Consider it carefully. Don't, don't, don't just drift through. Don't shut off. Don't think this is unimportant. If you continue to live your life thinking that you can carry on without wearing Christ and having Christ and being in possession of Christ, you're naked. You have nothing before God. And if you die, you will perish. There, there, there's no second chance at this. There's no purgatory as is espoused by Rome in order for her to fill her coffers even more by the duped individuals who think that by offering prayer and giving money for masses for the dead, they will somehow shorten the experience of their loved ones in this place of torment that is designed not to last forever, but just purify them to be prepared to go to heaven. A lie! It's after this, the judgment. It's after this, you stand before God. It's after this, if you do not have Christ, you have nothing. Christ is our righteousness. He is what is needed. And when we read through the New Testament, this becomes very clear. Turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. This is written to the church, those who profess faith, those who have made an external commitment at the very least to Christ. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 30, the Apostle Paul says, But of him are ye in Christ Jesus, who of God, this is Christ now, who of God is made unto us Christ is made unto us. This is what Christ is to us. What is Christ to the believer? Paul says, Christ is to the believer wisdom. If you don't have Christ, you don't have wisdom. You may have intellect, but you don't have wisdom. You may be good at making decisions, but you don't have real wisdom. The wisdom that matters is the wisdom personified in the book of Proverbs. It is Christ. And that's what Paul's saying here. He has made unto us wisdom. We become wise when we have Christ. If we have not Christ, well, how can we boast in any wisdom when we're on our way to hell? We have nothing. But he has not just made unto us wisdom. He has made unto us righteousness. He is a righteousness. 
Christ is our righteousness. He is that which we have before God. He is our righteousness. Believer, treasure it with all of your being. When you sing words like the testimony of McShane that we sang at the commencement of our service tonight, your heart should be rejoicing. There are few, I argue there may be no other greater truths to ponder and consider than Christ my righteousness. Turn to the book of Romans as well. Turn back a few pages. Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1. Note the well-known words here of Paul in, from verse 16. He says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth. The gospel of Christ is the message whereby when men trust in that, when they cast aside every other vain philosophy and they plunge themselves entirely into the gospel, taking the message that was being proclaimed by the preacher, it is the power of God unto salvation. To the Jew first and also to the Greek. For therein, where? In the gospel. It's in the gospel of Christ is the righteousness of God. In the gospel of Christ is the righteousness of God revealed. Now again, don't, don't misunderstand the language of the apostle here. He's not talking in, in elevated language about the, the nature inherent within God. He's not referring to a righteousness that we know would, 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 be, would be part of God in terms of his, his attributes. He is dealing here with what is revealed in the gospel of Christ. As the Son of God enters the world, as God enters into time through the person of Christ, a message is spread of this being the answer. This is God's message to lost men. This is the hope for the hopeless. This is what men must believe and trust in. It is Christ. And that message goes out and it's therein we find the righteousness of God because God in Christ is fulfilling righteousness for His people so that people without righteousness might have righteousness as they rest in Him. That you, you have righteousness by, by having Christ. This is developed a little more when you go to chapter 3 of Romans. Romans chapter 3. Verse 21. But now the righteousness of God without the law is manifested being witnessed by the law and the prophets. Here's, here is what God was talking about. Even back in what we, we looked at in Jeremiah 23. The prophets were declaring righteousness. Declaring a message of righteousness. And here is how a man obtains righteousness without him. Giving himself to adherence to the law himself. 
This righteousness is manifested, verse 22, 22, even the righteousness of God, which is by faith of Jesus Christ. This is the message that is from Genesis to Revelation. That man is brought near to God, found acceptable to God, can enter into God's presence, can pray to God, and finally enter, enter glory with God because he has a righteousness provided for him in the Son of God. And it is the height of blasphemy to consider anything else. When God says the day you eat of the fruit you will die, you will perish, all your posterity are on their way to hell, and yet He intervenes and He sends His Son. Here is the way to obtain righteousness. Believe. That's what it says in verse 22. This is what is put before us the righteousness of God which is by faith of Jesus Christ unto all and upon all them that work for it? Do you get this righteousness by impressing God by doing something? Is that what the text says? Read your Bible, pray, attend church, be a good person, treat your neighbor as you'd like to be treated yourself. All these things have their place. But is that how you obtain the righteousness of God. No. It is upon all them that believe. <laughs> it's all them that believe. And, and, and God has made this a universal message. It's the universal message. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. God sees the plight of all men in every nation, Jew, Gentile, wherever they are. And this is the one singular message. Christ, our righteousness. Do you have him? What do you have? What's your argument before God? What are you going to say on that day of judgment that will come sooner or later? What are you going to say to every child of God, every Christian? My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. On Christ, the solid rock, I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. Only Christ. Christ is given, or in the language of the theologians, he is imputed. It's found in Scripture as well. He is imputed. Given to us. In the face of your failed obedience to the law of God, by faith, you can obtain righteousness. A flawless righteousness. It is Christ, therefore, that you need. And you go back to our text. Blessed are ye that hunger now. Hunger for what? What are you hungering for? What's the object needed? It is righteousness. That's what Matthew 5 makes plain. Hunger and thirst after righteousness. Where do we find that righteousness? It is in Christ. So when Christ conducts his ministry, where does he draw attention to? Moses? No. 
He draws their attention to himself. These hungering people, these thirsting people, John 6, 35, listen to what he says. I am the bread of life. I am the bread of life. He that cometh to me shall never hunger, and he that believeth on me shall never thirst. I am what you need. Come to me. I am the one sent to satisfy all that is necessary. I am the one that can bridge the gap. I am the one that brings the parties of God, the parties of men together. I unite them in myself. If you trust in me, as you've been brought near to me, you will be brought near to the Father. I am the bread of life. The very next chapter, John 7, 37, If any man thirst, let him come unto me and drink. It could not be more plain. Your hunger, would you, your, your courage here, that the object that you need is righteousness. It is taking our attention off everything else and putting it upon Christ. But secondly, not only the object needed righteousness, the obsession encouraged. What is the obsession encouraged? Well, it is that we would hunger and thirst for it. In our text, blessed are ye that hunger now, for ye shall be filled. Or in Matthew, hunger and thirst is the encouragement. And I don't need to explain to you what hunger is, although <laughs> we probably don't experience it much these days in the way that they may have done in the past. That sense of craving, the urgent need for food. Figuratively, we use the word hunger to describe craving for something ardently and seeking something with eager desire. Thirst is the same figuratively, it means no different. To have a real ardent yearning for something, a craving, an urgent need. I have to have this. I must have this. That, that's, that's what hunger signifies. We can consider it in a number of ways. Hunger, first, is a prevalent experience. It is a prevalent experience. Turn for a moment to Isaiah 55. We, we sang that, that last hymn that is paraphrased on this passage, Isaiah 55. We'll look just at how it begins. Isaiah 55, verse 1. Ho, everyone that thirsteth, come ye to the waters, and he that hath no money, come ye, buy and eat. Yea, come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. Wherefore do ye spend money for that which is not bread, for your labor? For that which satisfieth not, hearken diligently unto me, and eat ye that which is good, and let your soul delight itself in fatness. Now, what the prophet is reflecting here as the Lord is speaking to his people is the fact that, that everyone has a hunger. It's not saying, it's not highlighting the good thirst of those that are after the Lord. It's highlighting the fact that everyone has 
some measure of thirst, some measure of hunger, that there's a prevalence of the experience of hunger, an appetite that is experienced by all people. But people try to meet that appetite, satisfy that hunger in different ways. And the appeal of the passage is, stop going after the wrong thing. Stop going after that which doesn't satisfy. Listen to me, everyone that thirsts. Come to the waters. Stop going where you're going. Stop giving yourself to all the garbage and nonsense that cannot satisfy your soul and your craving. So you're spending your money after some kind of craving, but it doesn't satisfy. You're laboring for that which doesn't satisfy. So verse 3 says, Incline your ear and come unto me. Come to me, here and your soul shall live. And I will make an everlasting covenant with you, even the sure mercies of David. I will give you my promise. You will be satisfied with what I offer. Do you see it, beloved? It it is this prevalence of, of an appetite that man experiences. We, 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 feel, we feel a sense of appetite and we try to satisfy it and we do it in different ways. And you're doing it. You're, you are doing it. I, I don't know if it's after Christ. I hope it is. But for some of you, maybe it is not. You're after everything else but Christ. And again, it's varied. It's different. I could start detailing certain things that this world is after. Popularity, money, certain material things of life, relationship, family, all, all these other things. And, and you think this, this is the answer. There you are, a young woman. You think the answer is your knight in shining armor. You think the answer is just to have a family of your own and your own little environment where you can homeschool your children and, and you just you focus right there or maybe some other lofty desires. You're a young man with ambitions for wealth and, and to attain certain things and, and to have certain things. You have your eyes set on that car and you're saving for it and you think that will satisfy. And you go after it. And then you get it. And while you will try to, to you will try for the most part because you're too proud to admit it, you will try to suggest that it does satisfy. But it doesn't. Actually, you get that nice new car, crisp and clean, expensive, has everything you want, and you're five minutes down the road, and you're behind some truck, and a rock comes flying up and just hits the bonnet, and now you're upset. You wish you were driving the old banger that you had before. And you you feel a kind of sense of being upset and loss. How quickly it can fade. And all the ambition, all the desire just dissipates as you realize this, this, can't, this can't satisfy. Same in relationships. If you think that's the key for your happiness. Again, these things, it's not like they're all wrong. It's about, it's about focus. And the prevalence of men, everybody has this. And We, we, have, we have this inherent desire to, 
always want something more. We're not in Eden. And whether we understand the theology of it or not, part of our humanity knows it is not an Eden. And when the gospel does not counsel our hearts, we try to imagine that there's something out there that is that will will meet the place, that will, 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 will be like being back in Eden, that we have everything that we could ever desire. And the Lord declares through His prophet, everyone that thirsteth come to the waters. Come ye to the waters. What waters? Verse 3, come unto me. I am the waters. I am the waters. And that becomes even more clear when we open up our New Testament and see Christ saying, I am the living water. Come to me. All your ambition, you're constantly looking for this, that, and the other. Just get yourself to me. It's the prevalence of this experience of hunger. Don't, don't follow the world as they try to satisfy their desire. Even in the religious context. I mean, this was the problem with the Pharisee that the Lord drew attention to in Luke chapter 18, verse 11. The Pharisee stood and prayed thus with himself, God, I thank thee that I am not as other men are, extortioners, unjust adulterers, or even as this publican. He's he's satisfied with his own righteousness. He he thinks that he he has what, what he needs. His craving is to be better than others. And, and he gets there. As he looks around himself and he looks at, well, extort, and compares himself with the worst people that he can see. Extortioners, unjust, adulterers. I'm not like them. Not even like this publican. And he thinks he's, he's satisfied his craving. But yeah, that's why the Pharisees had a problem with Christ. Because Christ portrayed something that made them dissatisfied. Exposed their hypocrisy. Exposed the fact they were not as holy as they thought themselves to be. As he walked around speaking like never a man spake, performing his miracles, their anger rose up and intensified and condemned them. Condemned them. You're nowhere near as holy as you imagine yourself to be. Hunger is also a primary concern. Hunger is a very specific desire, isn't it? Even a man who longs for wealth will think very little of gold when he is starving. When he is starving, he's thinking about one thing, food. It it, it narrows our our sense of of concern, doesn't it? It makes something primary. It it, it removes all secondary matters. It It exposes what is secondary. And it focuses on this this one thing. And the Lord says, Blessed are ye that hunger now. And as we've established already, this hunger, the object of it is righteousness that is found in Christ. And so what the primary concern ought to be then is, is, is Christ. It is to be Him. He is to be the primary concern of our hearts. Again, you, you think about what, what would it be like to be starving? To not have eaten at all for days and days. To truly experience what it is to starve. That is the blessed condition. Where a soul feels himself to 
I just need one thing. Everything else gets, kind of fades away and you realize this is the one thing I need. Christ. The Lord encouraged this, this kind of approach to spiritual matters. In Luke chapter 13, verse 34, he said, Strive to enter in at the straight or the narrow gate. For many, I say unto you, will seek to enter in and shall not be able. Why are some people unable to enter into the narrow gate that they apparently want to enter in? What is the difference? You, you have a group of people, he says, strive to enter into the narrow gate. Many will seek to enter in and shall not be able. Why are they not able? Why? I'll tell you why. They don't want it enough. That's why he says, strive. Labor. Exhaust yourself on this primary thing. Make it primary. Don't, don't make it secondary. Don't, don't put it down the pecking order. Don't imagine that it will come. It will just someday you'll just all of a sudden be, be through the gate. If you have not prioritized it, it will not happen. If it is not fundamentally the greatest desire of your soul, it will not come to pass. Anyone here who has known what it is to truly be regenerate, especially if you've been a little older, into your late teens perhaps, into your twenties, maybe beyond, and, and you have, you've, you've felt what it is to be lost, and then to see Christ, well, at that moment, at that moment when you're, you're really closing in with Christ, not, wild horses couldn't keep you back. There's nothing that you craved more than just to get this load of sin off. To close in with Christ, to remove the sense of conviction and be liberated through the promise of the gospel. And you strive. And Christ stands before his generation. He said, look, many, many, they'll, they'll, they'll seek to enter in. They'll have an interest to enter in. They'll want, but they're not, they'll not be able. They will not be able because, because they don't strive to enter in. You must strive. You must strive. How do you strive? You, you make this your primary concern. You say within your mind and heart, if it's the last thing I do, I will become a Christian. My primary concern, the, the, the most important thing in my life is to know I am saved. And you keep pressing that matter. I say to you, you can come and know Christ tonight. You can be saved this very hour. Perhaps there's, there's things that you're wrestling with and battling with. I would say to you, you keep striving. You, you weigh up the importance of those things. You consider them in light of eternity. You ponder over what it would be to be damned simply because you prioritize something else over Christ. To be under the eternal judgment of God, suffering forever, justly. Because you prioritize something else other than, other than Christ. He said, I'm putting Christ down. It's, it's important, it matters to me, but not right now. The language of hunger, beloved, the language of hunger. 
The intense feeling of hunger is reflecting how the heart how the heart feels when it realizes that the only thing I need is Christ. It's the primary concern. So blessed, blessed are ye that hunger now. That's a happy place to be. I just want to be saved. Praise the Lord. I just want Christ. There's no more blessed place to be. Thirdly, it is a persistent craving. It is a persistent craving. It won't go away. Unless it is satisfied by what it is after, it doesn't go away. It continues on. And, and, and this is again, you go back to Isaiah 55 and you realize this was their problem. They were trying to find satisfaction in everything else but the one thing they needed, God. And, and, and people do this. They, they, they go from one thing to the other, never being satisfied, living in constant misery. I mean, there's different ways in which this expresses itself. <sighs> the hardness of the heart of men. You can get a man to acknowledge that he, it, I know, I know I need Christ. I know that's the one thing I need. I understand it. And yet they still pursue the secondary things. They try to find some contentment and They're drinking and all the folly of their lives. The Apostle Paul understood that for him it was always going to be Christ, always Christ. We referred to this passage last week and I refer to it again only another verse. It's Philippians chapter 3. In that portion... The Apostle Paul, again, he's talking about how he lives his life. Paul, how do you satisfy your craving? What is it that you're after? You have an appetite. What, 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 what satisfies it? Philippians 3, verse 13. Brethren, I count not myself to have apprehended. I, I'm, not, I'm not there. But this one thing I do, this one thing, you see, it's, it's like a hunger. It's like a hunger. It strips away all the other things. It, nothing else can get in. You have to remove the clutter. There's one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forth onto those things which are before. I press toward the mark for the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. I am after Him. Always Him. And so, even the believer's life, the believer's life in many ways is a, is a constant blessed hunger. Even after we receive Christ and are adorned with His righteousness and, and come to know Him, there's a sense in which, yes, we are filled. Ye shall be filled. But even still, there's an ongoing hunger as the appetite remains. And this is actually why I have not, I have purposefully not taken this text to refer to righteousness that is developed in the believer's life. 
There's an application there, and we, you may discuss it, and some preachers will, may draw attention to that, but I, I have not. Because that's not the emphasis, I don't believe that as the emphasis of the Lord in this text. He's not intending us to think about how we, once we have the righteousness of Christ, then begin to be satisfied with the ongoing sanctifying of our own lives as we become more like Him, and then that satisfies us. That's not the emphasis of the text, and I don't believe it ever happens. Like the, the, like the psalmist, I will be satisfied when I awaken thy likeness. Only then. It's not going to happen now. I am never going to be getting that sense of being filled if the focus is on the obedience of the believer. We're always falling short. We know it. The only sense of satisfaction that we ever have in this life is the perfect righteousness of Christ. And when the hunger begins to rise again, when we, when we feel it ongoing daily, that we, we feel this hunger, where do we go? What's the invite? Where does the Lord point us to? It's to keep going to Him. You're blessed when you hunger, and you will be blessed in your satisfaction being filled because you turn with that blessed hunger to Christ and Christ alone. Where you can both continue being blessed and hunger. You, you, you keep being hungry. That's a blessed place to be, to be hungry. But also you, you enjoy something of being filled. And that's only in Christ and Christ alone. God hath made him to be sin for us. Who knew no sin. That we might be made the righteousness of God in him. Do you know, could it be that you walk out of here an unbeliever? I'm just pondering now, I'm just considering now, what has been presented? Just stopping and I'm thinking, what have I just preached? What have I just preached? And could it be that someone who has yet to obtain this righteousness will just get up and walk out like it means nothing? I have put before you tonight it's not it's not about the preacher. The the message is the most glorious message that a lost sinner could ever hear. I'm not telling you to buck up your ideas and be better. I'm not telling you to try harder. I'm not asking you to turn over a new leaf. I'm not suggesting that you're disgraced the way you're living and you need to change. What I am putting before you is simply this. Christ, Christ, Christ is your righteousness. You want righteousness? Come to Christ. Seek Christ. Close in with Christ. And don't miss on the gift of eternal life. Let's bow together in prayer.
Are you saved? Are you saved? If you die, are you going to be with the Lord? You don't need my help. Right where you are, you can cry out. The Lord hears the humble cry. You realize that you don't have Christ. You don't have peace with God. You don't have assurance. Just run by faith. You take the promise of Christ to you. If you come to him, he won't cast you out. If you cry, if you seek the Lord, you will find him. Strive to enter in. Strive to enter in. Make sure if you do one thing, you have Christ as your righteousness. Gracious God, we cry to Thee to have mercy upon those that are still unclothed. To have mercy upon those that do not possess the righteousness of the Son of God. God, help them in their unbelief. Deliver them from all the distractions and secondary matters. And may there be that hunger for Christ and for Christ alone. Dear God, give grace, that deciding grace, the effectual call, and hear the collective prayers of all thy people here this night. Bless those that will remain behind, those that will go downstairs for fellowship. Sanctify that time and bless the food to your bodies and be with us all as we Continue on in the rest of this week. May the people of God live for thy glory with the help of heaven. May the grace of our Lord Jesus, the love of God our Father, and the fellowship of the Spirit be upon all thy people now and evermore.